one of the major storylines in sports and entertainment is actually in the minors, the 160 affiliated clubs across the country that make up minor league baseball. Before the pandemic, minor league baseball drew over 41 million fans, more than nearly any other league. But there were storm clouds even before that on the horizon, including a tenuous contract renewal with major league baseball. On this maiden voyage of the crowd makers, I sit down for a conversation with the commissioner of minor league baseball, Pat O'Connor. Buckle up. This edition of the Crowdmakers starts right now. Welcome to the Crowdmakers, inside the C-suite of sports and entertainment, the definitive podcast on the inner workings of the business side of professional sports, concerts, and live events. These are the people that are shaping the new landscape of the industry, the executives that are creating the new paradigm for live entertainment. These are the inside conversations you won't hear anywhere else. These are the Crowdmakers. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the digital training network that uses micro-learning and spaced repetition to form new habits of success in sales, service, leadership, and more. Created by sports and entertainment industry experts for the industry. Learn more at ISBI360.com. And now, here's your host for the Crowdmakers, Bill Gertine. My guest today is Pat O'Connor, and we're great to have his presence here. He's the commissioner of minor league baseball. Thank you so much for taking some time for us today here on the Crowdmakers. Well, Bill, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So it's been a weird time for everybody. What have you been doing during this pandemic time to better yourself? You've got a book on your nightstand, something you're grateful for. What's going on in your life? You know, Bill, what I've done the most of is, is test my faith and trust in my faith and and I find a lot of peace and calm there. The rest of my day, my waking day is, is not filled with too much of that. So uh, I read a little, you know, I just read so much for work uh, and, and communicate with people so much for work that uh, I have found over the years. And when I used to travel a lot, I have found that I am not too bad company for myself. And um, some, some alone time for reflection um, is good. And I find myself doing that when, uh, uh, when my body and my mind tells me it's time to uh, step aside for a second. When, when things were normal, I was traveling 150 to 175 days a year. I haven't been on an airplane since March. I haven't been in a hotel room since March. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not looking forward to going back to either one of those. Uh, we are communicating on Zoom. Uh, I have... Uh, uh, I, I've been a little more accomplished at Zoom and Skype and all of these other technologies that an old dog like me normally wouldn't have participated in. And I'm, I'm, I'm finding them to be effective. And in some cases, I enjoy them. And as you and I have talked, you know, this is a, an audio only conversation, which gives us the liberty of having a shirt on on top half and a pair of shorts on the bottom. <laughs> well, secrets are now all out, Pat. So we can't... Uh... <laughs> Can't say one way or the other now. You know, I, I love your lighthearted nature to this, but I, I know this time has been particularly difficult for you personally, as you've had to watch a lot of the teams that you oversee lay off a lot of their talent. And those teams have turned to you and the league office to kind of help them steer them through this. What do most people not understand about the difficulties of running a minor league baseball team in good times, let alone today? Well, I think probably more than anything, it, it, there are a couple of, of key takeaways for people. And as you expose them to more and more of what we do, they have a greater appreciation. But one is the breadth of this organization, the size of it. It's a huge asset for us to have the size. 
but it's a tremendous liability and responsibility in many other ways. When, when you think about our breadth geographically, uh, market size, uh, ability to do business, you know, um, we're looking at, at, at teams within the same league who have 24,000 people in their MSA and a team who will draw 24,000 people on a weekend series. You know, you have that breadth. You have 42 states, you have state capitals, you have county seats, and you have villages and burgs and cities. Uh, so I think that that's probably, you know, the, the largest, the, the largest uh, hurdle that you have to navigate. Um, and, and, and then there's just the difference of thought. Um, you know, we, we work off of the power of one that with 160 clubs, um, we can uh, wield more influence in commercial markets, uh, in the internet space, so on and so forth. Uh, so we try to, to um, govern to the center, you know, and, and have all boats rise on a high tide. We try not to reach uh, economic, uh, financial, or, or any kind of parity by lowering the top. We want to raise the bottom to the middle and up, up higher. Uh, so I, I think that that's the biggest obstacle is, is just the size of our organization and what comes with that. Um, and, then, and then recently, and, and by my standards recently is the last 10 or 15 years, um, the, you know, there's been a change in ownership and I think it's for the better, uh, but it has presented some issues. Uh, there's a greater sophistication of ownership. Uh, and, and that's not to criticize the people that plowed the, fil the fields 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, it's an evolution that I think is good, but it's brought more sophistication. And it's put a greater, uh, a greater emphasis on the quality of the business and that you do, the quality of the services that you provide. And I think by and large, the staff that we have in St. Petersburg has met or exceeded that challenge. Uh, and I'm very proud of that staff and what it does on a day in and day out basis to try to manage 160 teams. <laughs> 160 seems like such a daunting task when you've got other commissioners that have 30 teams and 35. Is that the only unique challenge with 160 that you've got so many different people to try to please? Or is there more to it than that we don't see? Well, I, you know, I, I mean, you know, there are, there are things, I mean, there, you know, there are governance issues. There are, um, you know, tr trying to, uh, trying to lead groups that, that have diverse thought. Um, you know, so, it, you know, it's, it's a, a nice mix of good, solid business, uh, being a professional, uh, being political, uh, which, you know, um, I, I try not to be overly political uh, in a sense internally. Um, but, you know, you have to, uh, uh, my grandmother used to tell me, Bill, Jimmy Pat, my name's James Patrick. Jimmy Pat, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. So I try to do a lot of listening, um, and, and I try to listen not only to uh, the people and the stakeholders who have the, the, the interest in the game, uh, but those around me. Um, and, and I like to, to collect a lot of thought and then kind of sift through it and, and come to some, you know, some consensus. Um, you know, I, I, I equate leading to, to climbing a high tree, Bill, a big tree. The higher you go, the limbs get skinnier. The higher you go, you get the hottest sun, you get the strongest wind, and you get the coldest rain. Um, it's, it's not always easy, and it's not always popular, um, but that's what we sign up for when we take these kind of positions. 
and and it, it is things that you know uh, challenge us. Uh, but uh, instead of, of sulking about it, it's what makes us get up in the morning and want to go out and try to do the best job we can do. Well, one of those challenges that you have in front of you as we speak today, minor league baseball is still in negotiations with major league baseball in a new agreement. And it's been widely reported that MLB would prefer to have fewer clubs. What do you think is driving that desire for them? And, and what alternatives that you've brought to the table may not have received the kind of reception that you thought they deserved? Well, I, you know, I, while I don't necessarily agree with their position, I understand it. Okay. Uh, it is a, a part of economics, you know, with the uh, Save America's Pastime Act and their commitment to pay players more money, uh, they're going to have to pay the players they have more money. Uh, so there is an economic element to that. Uh, if you have to pay 120 teams more money, uh, then you can offset some of that by cutting 40. Um, I also understand their position. Again, while I don't agree with it, uh, and, and that's fine, I don't have to, uh, they are of the opinion that they don't need 200 to 250 players in their system uh, to produce major leaguers. Uh, that today with analytics and training techniques, uh, they can uh, scout better, draft smarter, and, and teach and instruct at a higher level uh, with technology. Uh, therefore, they don't need all those players. There, there are two systems, uh, two thoughts uh, processes or two philosophies, Bill, in player development. One's called the funnel, where you just put as many players in the funnel as you can, and it'll spit out your 8, 10, 12 major leaguers that you want. And the other is is more selective, which I just described for you. Um, so, you know, that is their, and that's my understanding of their positions. Uh, the, the issues for that um, are the fact that we are leaving behind uh, potentially leaving behind 40 cities uh, that have supported minor league baseball over the years. Um, we are leaving behind 40 cities that, uh, in many cases, um, it's the first touch point for those communities with professional baseball. And in a lot of those, it's the only touch point for professional baseball. So my concern is more uh, futuristic in that are we you know, cutting out the next generation of minor league baseball fans and major league baseball fans, and where does the game go without any sustainable growth in the fan base? Um, major league baseball has plans and has things to do, um, and, and it remains to be seen uh, what, you know, uh, what will, will come of it. Uh, major league baseball has, has expressed some concerns, you know, about some of the governance issues. Uh, and we've put forth a proposal that we really feel uh, addresses 80, 90 percent of their their issues in a way uh, that would be functional. Um, and and you know, to my owners, there are a couple of things that are important: uh, franchise values, territorial rights, different things like that. That you know, we've tried to strike a balance of what Major League Baseball has indicated it wants uh, with what we feel we need. And, you know, we'll, it remains to be seen if we can get back uh, to the table and start negotiating and talking about things. Uh, we'll see where that leads. Yeah. It's safe to say that 40 of those clubs, those 40 that may be on the bubble, are good friends of yours. They've been around for many, many years. You've talked to them, I'm sure, personally about what's at stake for them and their communities. Have you discussed any alternatives for those 40 clubs if, in fact, Major League Baseball should win that concession? Yeah, that conversation is, is months old, Bill. Um, 
of course it is. You know, we we don't um, we don't want to jettison uh, anyone who wants to be a part of minor league baseball, the National Association, or whatever iteration of the organization survives. Um, so from that perspective, you know, those conversations are are almost continuous and ongoing. Um, you know, the, 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 there are a couple of, of issues um, in, in trying to, to deal with this. One is, you know, the lack of, of information out of MLB. You know, Major League Baseball has a pretty daunting task on its plate right now, uh, and we understand that, and we've tried to exhibit great patience with them uh, and with, you know, the, the pandemic. I mean, we understand that. But we, you know, we hope to be able to, to provide more clarity and more substance um, and, and move through to uh, a negotiated settlement. We're still very much interested in, in coming to an agreement with Major League Baseball uh, that serves both organizations for an extended period into the future. Are you able to share some of the thoughts that you've got for the other teams that may be on the outs? Well, I, I've publicly said, you know, um, uh, I, we want to try to keep professional baseball in as many of those cities as possible. It's what they've known. It's what they've supported. It's what they've grown up with. Uh, how we get there, uh, is, you know, the devil is in the details. Um, so, you know, th there are a variety of options, but that's the premise from which we start. And, and beyond that, there's just way too much that, that has to, to, to flow through uh, the negotiations, the internal governance of our organization, the relationship with, you know, Major League Baseball. Uh, but when you set out on, on, journeys like this, you know, I think you have goals and then you have strategies and tactics that try to get you to your goals. Um, and, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of like putting a jigsaw puzzle together, Bill, and four pieces are under our seat. You know, we, we're just not able to get it done yet, uh, but we continue to work on it. Uh, we continue to promote dialogue among those most affected. Uh, and, you know, um, uh, just the the 600 pound gorilla that comes on top of everything is the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a point in time when we we were wondering how many teams we were going to be able to have and need via the vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the PBA. Uh, now with this pandemic, you know, there is a legitimate question of how many will be left, uh, which is why we've gone to Congress and, and we've sought out uh, remedies that allow us to get to the other side of this pandemic. You really have really talked your talk and actually walked it as an administrative intern when you started in Dodger Town, I working did. in Vero Beach for the Dodgers affiliate there. And, and it was really, I, I'm sure, an interesting time for you. As I remember, you'd had a, a, some run-ins or some uh, opportunities to get to know Tommy Lasorda. I, I did. You know, a, a, a story, my favorite story of, of Tommy uh, was the spring training of 1981. I had gone down in November. I sold spring training. Um, and, and back then, Lou Carlisle was the pilot of the Dodger plane. They had their own plane. Uh, the Vero Beach Municipal Airport's an old naval uh, night flight training center. So it has an exceptionally long runway, which allowed this big jet to land. Um, as an intern, you know, I had two responsibilities, line up the rental cars with the people's name and the windshield. And I was the uh, baggage crew, you know, part with the grounds crew. We'd load up the, the bags on the, uh, on the, the, the uh, pickup trucks and we'd take them over to the villas, which were part of Dodgertown. Uh, and I was set up um, by, by those, you know, it was the intern 
easy hazing, so to speak. Uh, I got to deliver Mr. Lasorda's bags to him. Um, he was in the clubhouse. Uh, they said, take these in to Tommy. Um, I walk him into Tommy, and by then he's holding court in his office. He's got two coaches and three players, and, you know, they're laughing and catching up and all this, that, and the other. And I, I kind of peeked my head in the door. I said, Mr. Lasorda, I have your luggage. And he just looked at me, and he says, does this look like my bleepity bleep 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 room? You know, and I, I just froze, you know. Um, and, and he was had to be in on it. Uh, so I, you know, slump and, and with a dog like a, like a dog with his tail between his legs, I walked back out to the pickup truck and the entire grounds crews there laughing at me. You know, they had known, they known what they had done. So, uh, but, but Tommy, uh, you know, Tommy was uh, a role model uh, for me early on. And I didn't get close to Tommy. I met and did more with Tommy uh, as the CEO of minor league baseball running into him in cities or as the president. Uh, but Tommy was a great example of having passion and, and, and instilling joy in what you do and great respect. Tommy had great respect for Dodger Blue. He had great respect for the game. He had great respect for the people of the game. You know, uh, despite my little hazing, you don't show people up. You show them respect. Um, and, and to see that in, a very, in my very formative time uh, as a professional uh, made an impression on me, you know, and, and to be able to, you know, just wake up every day and thank God he was the Dodger and thank God he got to go to a ballpark, you know, and, and uh, from, two, you know, from 1980 um, to 2008 when we bought our new buildings, uh, my office was in a ballpark or I could look out a window and see a ballpark. And, you know, that is a simple joy that I tried never to take, grant, take for granted. Great story. And one that I'm sure you've told over and over again with great joy, as you just did. Yeah. I'm, I'm some concerned, and perhaps you share my concern, with this pandemic and what has become the virtual internship. Yeah. That would not allow those interactions that you just described with Tommy Lasorda to happen. Is that something you're concerned about? And what advice would you pass on to teams to make sure that they get a well-rounded experience? Well, I, I think it's, it's important. You know, you can learn uh, only so much through a textbook and through a video screen. Um, the best learning experiences I've had, uh, the best skill development I had was by doing and succeeding or failing while doing. And I've been very blessed and, and, you know, I'm at a point now where this pandemic uh, from a development standpoint uh, is far less of a challenge than it is to young, young people trying to get into the game, uh, people in the game trying to advance in the game. You know, it is an obstacle that, you know, at 61 years old, Bill, I never thought as a country or as a sport we would ever have to live through. The reality is we're, we're in it. It's here. Uh, by all accounts, we're, we're making gains, but it's going to be around a while. So I, I think that, you know, it, it, it plays into our hand from the perspective that when you talk about minor league baseball and minor league baseball executives, the word creativity comes into the equation or the sentence real early. So we have to tap into that creativity and we have to take it upon ourselves at a time when we're furloughing people when we're cutting staffs and operations out of desperate need um, to not forget that there is another side to this pandemic. 
that this game will come back. It may not come back looking the same. It may not be able to operate the same, but we're going to need to replenish the greatest resource that minor league baseball has, and that's our people. And so we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, we may not be able to do things like we have in the past. The pandemic and the government will make sure that that's the case. And, and rightfully so. I mean, this is a dangerous, you know, uh, virus and, and I, I'm not, you know, being critical of the process. But rather than submit to the circumstance, we have to develop the alternative to the circumstance. And, and we will. And, and, and those who, you know, those who are willing will knuckle down and do it uh, from the perspective of uh, the virtual internship. You know, if, if you were to ask me, is, a is no internship better than a virtual internship? I'd say no. You know, at least they're getting to interface. Hopefully it's Zoom. Hopefully they're getting some work exercises and doing some work product. As I told you earlier in this interview, you know, I have been sold on remote work because of the quality and quantity of the work coming from my own staff. So there is an opportunity. It's different. And baseball guys don't like change, Bill. You know, you know that. Okay? <laughs> yes, I do. So it's different. So we have to get over the fact, well, we've never done it that way. That's never been a good excuse for doing business any certain way. So we have to put our heads together and we have to ensure that for our club's benefit, we're getting good work interns and good work out of interns, but also for their benefit, because when we get through this pandemic and we have to replace those furloughed positions, don't we want people who understand the business? We don't want to have to reset to ground zero and educate an entire new generation of people to work in this business. So we have to invest, and if not financially, at least time, because a lot of us have a lot more free time now with the pandemic than we thought we would ever have, but we have to reinvest and redirect that resource of time and human connection to develop these people and give them an opportunity. Um, you know, I feel for our clubs, you know, this, the, the, one of the saddest days of, uh, of my 40 year career uh, is when we finally had to succumb to furloughs in our office. You know, these are people who have dedicated their professional and personal lives to us, some of them for many years. Um, and it was very unfortunate. Um, and, and I feel the same pain when I read about teams, you know, doing that, you know, across the board. Um, but, you know, we, 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 we have to respect the process. We have to respect what is needed. We're not doing this for any other reasons than to best position us to come back after the pandemic. But we have to think about more than tomorrow. We have to think about next month, next year, next season. Yeah. You know, there were so many decisions to be made in rapid fire succession when the pandemic really began to wash over the country and the world. What was an example, perhaps, of a mistake that you made early on in the pandemic? And what do you think you learned from it? Well, um, you know, geez, a, a mistake. Uh, you know, it's a long list of, of things that we probably would have, have thought differently to do. Um, you know, I, 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 it's, it, there's a delicate balance of, of you know, communication, transparency, uh, and, and a, a problem with, uh, overexposing, you know, uh, not your hand, but, but, you know, the facts. Um, so I, I think that, you know, th there was a lot of talk about, you know, when the decision came out in March to, to shut down baseball and basically shut down sport, the country, everything. 
uh, many of the decisions were taken out of our hands. Um, and, and, you know, I, I empathize with Major League Baseball and, and Commissioner Manford trying to figure out how to get a 60-game city in a uh, 60-game schedule in 30 cities. Uh, we were looking at, you know, t almost 10,000 games in 160 cities. Um, and, and there was just no way we were going to navigate the bulk. You know, if we had players, could we provide a safe environment for them to, to play, to live, to stay? Um, and the answer clearly was no. Um, but, you know, as we went through this, you know, I, I, I wanted, I was holding out hope, much like Major League Baseball, I thought if we could get an abbreviated season. Uh, but as we continued to monitor the situation, uh, you know, I never thought that I would have uh, the national organization, you know, the health, the CDC, uh, the White House, you know, health specialist, you know, on speed dial. Uh, that's, that's an exaggeration. But, you know, we were daily checking to see, is there any hope? Is there any glimmer of hope? After a couple of exchanges with the commissioner, you know, it became obvious to me that we just weren't going to be able to, you know, to put anything together. They couldn't get, you know, roughly 5,000 players to someplace to train them and then ship them to us and have them in an environment. Uh, so we, you know, we pulled. I, I think a mistake <clears throat> that we may have made, um, but there were reasons we didn't do it earlier, is, is probably have pulled the plug earlier. Uh, so that teams uh, would have clarity. Um, there, there were a couple of things that contributed to that bill, quite honestly. Um, uh, thanks to, to Congress and the federal government, many of our teams were availed PPP money, uh, payroll protection program money, which required you to not furlough people uh, and, and if you took the money. Uh, most of that money expired June 30th. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a, an opportunity to, to keep things going, have as full a staff as possible using PPP to one, plan for the second half of the summer, and two, to develop alternative revenue sources, programs, uh, Airbnb and Pensacola, movie nights throughout minor league baseball, and that creativity kicked in. Uh, and then when we exhausted PPP, um, it was clear after a conversation with the commissioner that we agreed uh, a season was just not going to be practical. The intellectual decision was very easy, Bill. You know, when you line up the fact set, the intellectual decision was easy. Uh, emotionally, it was gut-wrenching uh, to think that we were not going to play baseball for the first time since 1901. Um, in the 1800s, in the case of the International League, who was in existence before the NA came about, it was a very tough decision um, to, to accept, not to make. Uh, so I, I think that in hindsight, you know, and there were some other reasons, you know, there are business implications to uh, pulling the plug. Um, and and our, I wanted our clubs to have time to um, deal with their partners, their season ticket holders, uh, their, their, you know, partners and sponsors in the community to figure out a plan. I don't think it came as a surprise to anybody when we announced on June 30th that the season would not take place. Um, but we allowed clubs to one, take advantage of what was available for them to be as full a staff as possible. And then two, to work with their local communities and their partners and figure out the plan. And, and I'm happy to report uh, maybe a positive out of the delay uh, in the decision is, is that many clubs have successfully navigated 
the fact that there's not a season with their season ticket holders. We're hearing anecdotally very high numbers of people who are just pushing to next year and not asking for refunds. Now, that is good that, you know, cash reserves that we may have spent to stay in existence have been used so we don't have to go necessarily to full refunds, but we've kicked the, the economic problem down the road. We've kicked that can down the road because now if 85% of our season ticket base paid this year and gets their tickets for free next year, we have a, we have a revenue gap. We, we have a revenue deficit. And this pandemic is, is not a one year and done problem for us. Uh, I've had uh, clubs tell me that it could be two, three years before they get out from under the economic impact. Uh, and it's not, the, the thing about it is, is the Major League Baseball issue was very subjective. Uh, it was selective. The pandemic's not. Uh, it, it permeates 160 teams. It permeates the, the most successful teams. And if you think about, you know, well, they make a lot of money. They, they generate a lot of revenue. Well, they're deferring a lot of revenue, too. And they're pushing a lot of revenue out. And it's going to take a while just because, you know, you save money in operations this year through furlough and cuts. Next year, if you go full bore, you go back to what you had and you're going to go back to what you had with a revenue base that is less than what you had, right. if that makes sense. And it's going to take some time to build that out and build that up. And I've had teams tell me it may be 2024 before they get back on solid footing. Which, which is all the more reason, Bill, that we have enlisted the help of Congress uh, to, to come up with a, a loan program, not a grant program. We're not looking for a bailout. We just need access to capital. Many of our owners have gone the commercial capital route, got letters of credit, lines of credit to sustain themselves to this point. Uh, many of them have, have kind of used up that credit. Um, and you know, um, when you go to borrow money for a house, or a business, you know, very early on, they want to see your tax returns, your income statement, something to produce uh, proof that you have revenue. But we have none. You know, an interesting fact about this pandemic bill is that full season teams, uh, assuming we go back to near capacity in April of 2021, they will have gone 18 months with no real revenue. Short season clubs will have gone 21 months with no new, no new revenue. And while banks and commercial institutions are usually local and homegrown and they are sympathetic to us, you know, we are not the only small businesses in this predicament. And, and there's tremendous stress on commercial lending uh, to make good loans. Uh, so we have gone to the government and asked for a, uh, a House Resolution 7023 uh, that's been proposed by uh, Representative Lori Trahan from Massachusetts and Representative David McKinley from West Virginia that allows us to tinker with and tweak the Main Street lending program through the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, the qualifications to get into that program. We're, it's a great program. We're just too small to get into it as it's written. So we've, we've crafted some, um, you know, fairly benign uh, tweaks that make us eligible. Uh, that'll give us low interest loans. We intend to fully intend to pay them back, uh, but get us to the other side of this pandemic. And where is that and, legislation in the process? Well, um, if you read the news today, it's, it's stalled in the uh, stalemate. Um, uh, but it is, you know, uh, I've, I've had tremendous civics lessons in the last two years. I spent more time in the last 
you know, 24 to, to, to 36 months in Washington than I ever thought I would. Uh, but it's been, you know, energizing and it's been enlightening and it's, it's actually been uh, an enjoyable process. Um, it's been presented to leadership. Uh, we're, we're shopping it. We're, you know, lobbying for lack of a better term. Um, and we're, we're hoping that some iteration of this, if not the bill itself, is incorporated in the next stimulus package. Uh, and, you know, you can take it from there as to where it's at. Um, it's, it's basically in the hopper, we're led to believe. Uh, Main Street as a program, not just for us, uh, is going to be open for discussion because, as I said, you know, and you've always heard me talk about, Bill, we're a collection of small businesses. Every small business in this country is in a, in a jam. So the, the concept of Main Street uh, opening its, its gates a little bit and relaxing some of the qualifications is not unique to minor league baseball. So we think it will be a part of the conversation. Uh, where it comes out is a matter of, of negotiation. And, and when leadership, uh, Republican and Democrat, get together uh, with the White House, uh, we just hope that we're there at the end of the day. We'll be back for the second half of our get-together with Pat O'Connor, the commissioner of minor league baseball, right after this. Hi, this is Bill Gertine. I've been training the ticket sales departments of sports and entertainment for almost 20 years, and I love what I do. But everywhere I went, the story was always the same. We loved what you did. You got us fired up. But after a while, we kind of lost the spark and we went back to the same old, same old. Well, not anymore. ISBI 360 is the first and only digital training network created exclusively for the specific long-term career needs of sports and entertainment professionals. Our seven different unique certification programs include the fundamentals of success in the industry, like ticket sales, sponsorships, social media, customer service, and leadership, all trained by industry experts like Brett Zalaski, Debbie Nolan, Misha Scher, and Seth Rabinowitz. ISBI 360 uses a unique four-stage learning process, including cutting-edge micro-learning videos, live recorded role plays, live coaching from industry experts, and an ongoing reinforcement program to make sure the learning sticks and forms the habits that your people need to grow and excel faster. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Check out what's different about ISBI 360 today. We're back for the conclusion of my visit with Pat O'Connor, Commissioner of Minor League Baseball. Well, there's so many storylines to be following, not only in Congress, but around the world with all that has changed. With all of those things, and you mentioned earlier that you're spending a whole lot of time reading, not just the trades of ours, but the trades of many others. What are some of the trends or the storylines in sports and entertainment that you're watching closely right now? Well, I, I, I'm, you know, uh, I can't really do anything about today. And I know darn good and sure I can't do anything about yesterday. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out the path. I, I'm trying to see where the more progressive and aggressive sectors of the economy are headed to not only reopen, uh, but to reopen with uh, some modicum of success, uh, some modicum of, of opportunity to be successful. You know, um, um, I, I can't guarantee success for any of the 160. Uh, what I really try to do is to create the environment that gives them the opportunity to be successful. And that's really what I'm focused on, Bill, is you know, how are, we going to, how are we going to navigate this in a way 
that, that doesn't bifurcate the organization with have and have nots, uh, that allows everybody the opportunity to uh, continue and to succeed, whether or not they make a decision that uh, leads to that, it's their decision. It's not my decision. Um, and so we spend a lot of time, um, you know, trying to figure out the path. And that's, you know, when I look around, I, you know, um, you know, uh, we can't bubble. I, I mean, you know, that, that's just not an option. But some of the concepts of the NBA, the WNBA, the NHL, uh, and, and I just read, you know, in the last two days, day and a half or so, MLB is thinking or considering bubbling the playoffs. You know, uh, uh, so what what are the learnings out of that short of going to a bubble? Um, you know, what what are the you know, what are the learnings here in St. Petersburg, Florida of um, reopening and then having to shut down? Uh, what are the learnings for uh, effective protocols that are not so onerous that they are counterintuitive and counterproductive to doing business and being successful? You know, and, and I mean, here in St. Petersburg, Florida, the county and the city are under a mask ordinance. Uh, you have to wear a mask to get into a business. Um, not everybody honors that ordinance, but, but you know, um, I, I went to a bank the other day and I had my sunglasses on and I forgot I had them on. I asked the guy, I said, did you ever think you'd welcome a guy into the bank with a mask and sunglasses on? Uh, but that's where we're at, Bill. And, and that's where, you know, we have to figure out you know, what are going to be the ways. There, there are some clubs who are doing great things. Uh, Mike Nutter in Fort Wayne uh, very consciously has honored uh, protocols for social distancing, uh, but he's had farmers markets and he's had, you know, different kind of events. Um, you know, and, and so that's what we're going to have to, to look at. Um, we know that our stadiums are going to need to be retrofitted because attending a, a live sporting event post-pandemic will not resemble in many ways, other than being there, pre-pandemic attendance. You know, and so, you know, I, I mean, from, you know, how are they gonna handle football if they play mm -hmm. college football? You know, I would equate that more to what we're doing. How is NASCAR integrating fans into their events? You know, and, and things like that. So I, I spend an awful lot of my time, you know, trying to figure out, you know, the, the path. And, you know, when, when I was working as the COO for Mike Moore, you know, we, we had a deal, you know, um, I would take care of today, you know, report about yesterday, take care of today and plan for tomorrow. He would take care of one, three and five years out. Uh, we try to adopt that philosophy. So I, I spend an awful lot of my time trying to figure out, you know, where we're going to go. Uh, others can tell me where we are. Others can tell me where we've been. Uh, and, and we really, uh, from a management standpoint, Bill, I, I like to, to use the, the deja vu philosophy. Uh, we try to create deja vu moments so that when we get there physically, we have been there mentally, we've been there emotionally. And when we can, when we can approach it in that way, um, then I think the, the stress, the anxiety, the pressure of, of sorting out the details you know, the, the, the substance rises to the top and you can deal with what's right in front of you. I know, having known you for quite a while, that you were doing diversity and inclusion way before it was cool. And I think, and, and it was because you had that vision all along. Several years ago, you began a program to really combat 
the inequalities within minor league baseball with a pretty exciting internship and immersion program in that. Could you describe that for the? the well, you know, in full transparency, the, 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 the roots and genesis of our program, um, Commissioner Seelig and, and then president of MLB, Bob DuPay, uh, asked me to join and put me on the Major League Baseball uh, Diversity Oversight Committee. And attending those meetings, uh, I got to learn from uh, an administrator and executive, Wendy Lewis, who was the, the, the uh, chief diversity officer at MLB. I don't know if she had that title, but that's what she was. And I got to sit alongside people like Bill DeWitt, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, Larry Dolan, um, um, you know, people who, you know, understood this not so much from a social perspective, but from a business perspective, it made good business. And, and I, I took that and I, and I realized that, you know, um, at the time, not that we were doing it wrong, Bill, but baseball was being run by a bunch of old white guys, myself included. And not that we necessarily had it wrong, but baseball's leadership was not reflective of its fan base and the communities to which it called home. And I felt if we were to really be successful over the long haul, we had to transform our thinking and develop a program that when we looked at our community and our community looked at us, they were mirror images. We were staffed, not necessarily proportionately in numbers, but we were staffed to resemble. We had programs that were you know, indicative of what was going on in our community from a diversity perspective. Uh, I learned a few things that uh, in that process that by, and the numbers, the year has moved over time, but somewhere around 2050, there'll be more people of color in this country than white, okay? That's not a social statement. That is a statistical fact that has been developed by people a lot smarter than me, okay? Uh, what, and, and, and this was kind of like in 2010, eight, nine, 10, seven, eight, nine, 10, just before my presidency or as my presidency took place, uh, took, took effect. And I'd been in baseball 30 years. And they were talking about maybe in 30 years, that would be the case. And it just dawned on me one night that if the next 30 years go as quickly as the last 30 years, we were gonna have a big problem. So we need to implement a program. And we looked as a staff and I, and I, I, I remember this distinctly sitting down with you know, Daryl Henderson and John Cook at the time. And, and I asked Daryl, I said, write these down. These are five pillars that I think we can most effectively change our culture and the way we go about this, dealing with this issue. It has to start in my mind, has to start with ownership. And then if you have an owner who is open to diversity, he will attract and hire diverse C-suite employees. And when you have C-suite employees of a diverse nature, your middle management and your employee base will look at that company and see that it looks more like them than less like them. And they will be attracted to that company because it's diverse, it's forward thinking, it's filled with opportunity for people of all color. And if you can do that and you have a company that is owned uh, and, and managed and operated by a diverse group, the fan base will inherently see that and become more interested in coming and seeing the work that you're doing. And when you go into the community, you will look, feel, sound, smell, taste, more like them and less like them. And you will develop a relationship that is not transactional. 
it's a relationship of, of, of spirit, of thought, of philosophy. Now, here's the kicker for the business guys. If you have a company that is owned, managed, operated, and patronized by a very diverse group of your community, businesses will line up to do business with you because they want that exposure to that diverse group. Because everybody in this country, you know, if it's a white owned business, they want the of color. If it's of color, they want to penetrate the, and if we can set the stage to meld that equation together, uh, then we have accomplished a moral, ethical business opportunity that should work and be successful. And the clubs that have been able to do that or parts of that, uh, and, and we have, you know, we have clubs that have, have done very well, not just following our model. Many of them were, were engaged at one level or another. And it, the thing about our management style, Bill, and, and we put these programs out, it's not a take it or leave it and it's all you have to do at all or you don't do anything. We try to create programming initiatives and opportunities for clubs to be successful. If it doesn't fit, you don't like it, you're not going to hurt my feelings, you know. Um, and, and if you have uh, something that you, you think might work better, then we certainly want to engage it. So that's the genesis of how we got to the initiative. Um, and then I started out on a college speaking series primarily to HBCUs to, you know, I needed – I felt we needed to attract job ready candidates to make an impact on the diversity quotient. So we, we went out and did that and then it expanded from there, you know, and, and we initiated the field program where we, you know, uh, we took up to 25 or 30 uh, young men and women, not all of color, but of, of there's gender uh, and race diversity uh, and immerse them in a week long program um, that, that was with my staff or was with executives of this business to give them an education and indoctrination to what minor league baseball was, what it had to offer, what it could mean to them. Uh, our goal certainly was to try to get those young men and women into minor league baseball. Uh, but I was also just interested in educating them on the sport, on the field of sport and, and the opportunities, you know, and, and as you know, Bill, uh, you don't have to work for a team to be deeply involved in sport these days. There are so many things, you know, unlike when, you know, I got started, you know, you went to work for a team or a league office, or you went to the other, the dark side and worked for a player agent. And that was it, you know, and, and it's just not that way anymore. So it's, you know, we had to take a year off, obviously with the pandemic. Um, I would hope that we can reinstitute that. Uh, I think it's been a successful program. Um, it has done two things. Uh, one of them I, I anticipated, one I didn't. Uh, well, I anticipated it would indoctrinate young men and women to sport. It would indoctrinate them into minor league baseball and give them uh, an opportunity to take a look, kind of a, a sample before they made a decision to come in or not. Uh, but the, the unintended consequence, which has really been gratifying, is what it's meant to my staff and what it's done to my staff to see these young men and women to interact with them. And we do everything from resume building to mock interviews to, you know, just fireside chats. And, and it has really been, you know, cathartic to my staff to, you know, to engage these young people. Uh, I think it's given them a greater appreciation for our initiatives. Uh, it's given them a greater appreciation for what these can mean to us in St. Pete. You know, we've hired a handful of, of field staff uh, 
uh, field attendees to the staff. And so, uh, you know, uh, that's where we're at with the program. Um, obviously, like a lot of things in, in business these days, the, the, uh, the pandemic has kind of put a, a wrench in it for now. Uh, but I think it's been effective. Um, uh, Vince Pearson got it off the ground. Uh, and, and after, you know, Vince and I used to sit around and talk about this stuff a lot. Uh, Belisha Montgomery, when Vince uh, left and went on to a, a, a bigger challenge, Belisha Montgomery's done a great job of, of stepping in, um, you know, and, and with what's happening in the world, you know, our staff is not immune in the country. Our staff's not immune to the, uh, you know, to the concerns and the stress and the strife of, of the social scene in America today. And, and Belisha and, and Tara Thornton, who handles our HR, has done a, a, a yeoman's job of, of navigating very difficult times. Uh, and and we're, we're excited uh, about the future. You know, every problem or challenge uh, is just a wrap, is an opportunity wrapped up in a big bow and you just have to dig through and figure it out. Uh, so we're, you know, uh, we're working hard to, to again, path, uh, uh, source the future and path the future. That's great. Well, you've been very gracious with your time and your answers. Just a couple things to wrap up. Usually I ask a, a few rapid fire questions just right off the top sure. of your head that are fun. Uh, first restaurant you'll go visit when you can. Bascom's Chop House, Olmerton Road. <laughs> the number one show you've been binge watching on TV while you've been in the pandemic. Uh, everybody Loves Raymond. The car you would drive if you could drive anything, no money uh, is the, no, money's no object. Uh, probably a, a, a Jaguar uh, Sport SL, you know, 350 or something like that. Very good. First vacation you'll take when you can. Wow. You know, I haven't had a vacation as, as such, Bill. Um, maybe a fishing trip. Very good. And then one bold prediction that you would have for sports and entertainment going forward. It will be a major factor in the solution of healing this country after the pandemic. Wow. Very good. My guest is Pat O'Connor, Commissioner of Minor League Baseball. Pat, thank you so much for your time today. Bill, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed the program, please like us, share us with those you know, and hit subscribe on the podcast, and we'll let you know when another new episode is dropped. Your positive comments will help keep the Crowdmakers on the air. We'd be grateful for your five-star review. Got someone you'd like to hear as a guest on the Crowdmakers? Let us know, and we'll do our best to reach out to them. Drop us a note at info at isbi360.com. That's info at isbi360.com. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the first and only digital training network for sports and entertainment professionals. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Our chief engineer of the Crowdmakers is Ken Marinelli. Sean Quinn is our director of operations. Mark Yazowitz is the digital platform guru. And the executive producer of the Crowdmakers is Doug Quinn. I'm Bill Gertine. Until next time, thanks for listening and so long for now. This is the Crowdmakers on the C-Suite Radio Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.